this is Tiger Talk. Hello, I'm Lucas Sims and welcome to Tiger Talk. Today we're going to be going away from our usual topic of horror stories or just something around the town county. Today we're doing a podcast on the weapons of World War II. Now I'm not going to go through every one of these because there is far too many to list. But we will look over some very important points and, and talk about the construction of the weaponry. So, to start her off here, we're going to go with the Luger P9 pistol. Very well known for the German usage of it. Had an artillery carbine chambered in 9mm Luger. First pistol with that car- cartridge, still widely used today. If everybody here doesn't know what a 9mm cartridge is, it's not very its not very powerful. It can't go over very long ranges. But it was a good sidearm for last resort when you really needed it. And I believe that in, on the, top of the topic of pistols and unique pistols, the British Wellrod should come up as an interesting name here. A bolt-action, integrally suppressed pistol with eight rounds in the magazine. Now, it wasn't known to work the best, and it wasn't very well carried because it just didn't work very well. But it was part of the further experimentation with suppressing weapons, which was a huge huge step forward in technology and advancing the battlefield. Now, these combined with a couple of the rifles they had with them were silent. Neat as all get out, still work with them today, as as obviously. But, uh... On to the next pistol. We're going to go straight to one of the, probably one of the lesser known pistols of the war, the Liberator M1942. The Liberator pistols, they'd fit in the palm of your hand. They were smooth bore. They were very cheaply made, but we, they were made to drop into France is what we did with them. We put them in great big crates and shipped them to France and just airdropped them in. So that way the French citizens who didn't want to be under Germany's rule could fight back without needing military assistance. Uh, that brings us into a couple of the rifles here. Uh, the German weaponry, in the terms of rifles, mostly was the Mauser Car 98 Kurtz. It was chambered in 8mm Mauser. It was a relatively useful rifle, except it was bolt action. And we obviously have advanced, and even then they had advanced some past that. But at the start of the war, pretty much everybody was using bolt action rifles. Like the other one they used was the MAS-36, well, MAS-36. It was another bolt-action rifle. It was a bit bulky, heavy. It was also in the same cartridge, 8mm Mauser. Bolt-action internal mag tube. Oh, that was a big difference on the Kurtz rifle and the MAS. The MAS took a actual internal magazine, while the Car 98 took a stripper clip-fed five-round internal magazine. Most hunting rifles have this today. The only difference with the stripper clip being you could load in five rounds before actually needing it, put it right on top of a couple of slots in the bolt build, and shove them straight down in. Now we'll look at some of the, well, we'll look at the changing sides here, the USSR, Russia, the Mosin-Nagant rifle, which was pretty well used because that's pretty much all Russia wanted to make at that point. They had like 17 different rifles, all Mosin-Nagant carbines. But uh, the M1938 is the example I have here. 
It was just a shortened version of the standard Mosin Gaunt rifle. The, the thing that made these stand out from standard bolt-action rifles, their bolt was straight out and to the side. They also fed from the stripper clip or top fed cartridges, held five rounds. It was chambered in 7.62 by 51. It wasn't the best rifle to use. It was pretty cheaply manufactured, but that was what we were looking for at this time. We were looking at something we could mass produce and ship out the door to get on the battlefield. Of course, the, the Russians, not the best engineers, but when they found something they could work with, they pretty much just stuck with it because they could. I mean, everybody else started off the war using bolt actions, so they figured they'd just stick with something that's been around forever. Now, in terms of more of our allies, the British. The British like to use the Lee Enfield rifle, particularly the number four Mark I. It had a couple of lugs on the front for a an attachable bayonet, it wasn't, you didn't have to have the bayonet, but it was used mainly as a sniper rifle, chambered in the 303 British caliber and fed by, by a 10-round magazine. It was a further development of the short magazine Lee Enfield rifles, which the, the design of this one was particularly different as opposed to some of the other ones, but the 10-round magazine and the bolt action on it was actually modified from an original German design where the bolt had a spring into it so the bolt would come back faster and reload load the next round. The iron sights could go up to about a third of a mile, I think that's what it was. Pretty far for iron sights, was made for snipers pretty well. And then they also manufactured the Lee Enfield number no. 5, which was a jungle carbine. It was in the 303 British, it had a front muzzle device on it, and it was not as much of a sniper rifle. But it had the same spring bolt. The only difference, really, the stock had been modified so that if you needed to, you could get up close and personal with it a bit more. Uh, the bayonet lug was removed due to the muzzle device being on the front of it. And the stock was designed far differently, leaving more of the barrel exposed, along with the iron sights and a sling loop. Of course, you didn't need a sling if you were going through the jungle to just catch on a couple of trees. But uh, in terms of what everybody used for a sniper, well, the Germans pretty much just went, hey, the car 98's nice, let's put a scope on top of it. And so that was their sniper, their infantry rifle, except with a scope. Not very much special there. Although you couldn't use the stripper clips to load it anymore, you had to load each round in by hand due to the fact of the scope being in the way, and if you tried to put it on there, you would hit the scope and probably knock it off of the, the original alignment. Now, for the British, they took the Lee Enfield rifle and did the same thing except they called it a T. It was the Lee Enfield number no. 4 Mark 1 T. And it just had a scope on the top. Still magazine fed, still had the spring bolt. Pretty simple. The Americans had two rifles that they used as sniper rifles in this war. One of them was the Springfield M1903A1 and a couple more of the A, A variants. A1, A2, A3. I don't think we ever got to A4, but we might have. And it was a bolt-action rifle. It had the internal magazine like the Mauser did. It took five rounds, 30-06. First rifle chambered for 30-06. Bolt-action, no special on this one. No spring, no nothing on this one. It just kicked straight back. It was just a standard bolt-action rifle like many would find to go hunting with. Although, it wasn't exactly used for hunting purposes until years later. You can find them now still. Now, the... UK also used a, I'm sure I'm not going to pronounce this right, a Delise carbine. It was a 
Originally, they had started it with a submachine gun barrel, and, and it was just a submachine gun to start with. But they added something to it. I can, I don't see very much of a difference between, but it was in 45 auto, which was ACP. Same pistol rounds as the 1911, which was used here as a sidearm. But for a sniper carbine, you'd figured you'd want a rifle round, so that you weren't, like, missing every shot you took because you were too far of a range for your cartridge. And your sights weren't the best. Uh, there wasn't really a scope for it. It was just kind of iron sights and please be accurate. I do believe that it was still select fire by this time. I'm not 100% sure, but I think they still had them in either semi-automatic or auto. They might have changed it to burst if it was for a sniper variation. But uh, one more that the Americans used here, the M1 Garand. We'll get into that later, but the sniper variation of it has scope on top. We'll get into the M1 Garand later. It's going to be a nice big portion of this. Well, why not? We'll get into it now. The M1 Garand was a top-loading semi-automatic rifle. It had an end-block clip. So it, it loaded through the top, yes, but it didn't load like the stripper clips because the stripper clips had five rounds set into them. You push the round straight down, you pulled the stripper clip out. The M1 Garand, however, had an entire clip that just went down into your action, and your action was pushed farther back. This made it when they put the, the scope on it for sniping, the scope had to be labeled off to the side quite a bit, due to the fact that the M-block clip would be in the way, and uh, I believe this here, the, if, if anybody would know it from anywhere, the ping. Whenever you saw this rifle, you, whenever you emptied the, either emptied the last round, or you had an empty M-block clip in it and you pull out the bolt, it would shoot the metal clip out because this clip was just sheet metal, aluminum. So whenever you pull it back, it would ping. And uh, it held eight rounds, semi-automatic, as I've mentioned. It was a gas-operated semi-automatic on the earlier versions, but they changed it on the later variations, and it was better without the gas operation to it for some reason. I think they changed something else internally to it. But it was just, it, it had a bayonet mount on the front of it, most of them. It had a magazine, it had the gas tube on the bottom of it, not a magazine tube, it had a gas tube. It was a bit weird to use for certain soldiers because it was semi-automatic as opposed to the bolt action most people were used to. It had adjustable sights on the back, you could adjust the windage, and I think you could adjust the elevation. You may not have been able to adjust the elevation. I've, I've held one, but it just, I never paid too much attention to it. Uh, but the back sights to it are pretty well stationary, except for the slight movement you can make for the windage adjustments. The front sight was completely stationary, and it had the two side guards and one little one little middle rod for accuracy. Uh, back then, we didn't exactly presume accuracy is the best thing. You just kind of shot, and if it hit, it hit. And the British made a variation of it that was in fully automatic, which was not the most effective of weapons because it had eight rounds and it shot off very quickly so eight rounds very quickly just wasted more ammo although you got to hear your rifle ping sooner now for France this is where some of the things get strange the France rifle that I have here was the Fusil Automatic Model 1917 semi-automatic rifle it took 8mm Mauser cartridges, well, at least 8mm, I don't have much information on it other than 8mm, 
uh, pretty long rifle, had some wooden stock to it. Well, most of them did back then because we didn't really have any plastic. We had, now, later into the submachine guns, spoiler alert, they were mostly manufactured with sheet metal, make them lighter and faster production. But the French semi-automatic, yeah, it was an eight millimeter Mauser and it loaded from a magazine, a detachable magazine. It was pretty well just the French version of the M1 Garand, except it didn't ping and it didn't have a top loading at magazine fed. Uh, the Americans here, aside from bringing the M1 Garand into it, also brought in the M1 carbine, chambered in 30 carbine. This was a little lightweight carbine. It was relatively small. It was gas operated in terms of the semi-automatic on it and the back sights on it were stationary and so were the front sights it was pretty much just a small lightweight carry around and a lot of american troops preferred it because it held 15 rounds and it was better for actually assaulting instead of just shooting from a distance it wasn't the best at distance shooting by no means uh the germans i'm sure i'm about to absolutely butcher this was the Gelher 30 or 43 it was just a semi-automatic rifle a lot of wood on it it was in eight millimeter gas operated there's not much a difference to a lot of these rifles although they were manufactured by different countries and the different ammunition they would take and the way that they worked overall because a lot of some of these they weren't seen very much of because they just didn't have a very effective use to them most of them were just kind of there and they they didn't have a whole lot of use in anything afterwards a couple of rifles did but they like the m1 proceeded to live a little bit into vietnam and if this if this podcast goes nice and we get a lot of people that listen to it we'll follow up with one on vietnam and that i will promise you but we'll say that this podcast has to get at least 150 listens uh now onto the earlier assault rifles in terms of one of the more unique rifles that was seen not very much throughout the war, the Charlton Automatic Rifle. It was made in New Zealand during 1941, more as an alternative to any standard rifle. It was gas-operated. It was semi-automatic. There's, I don't think there's any left today. It was more of a prototype gun that we kind of threw in there to see if it would work. It did, it did work well in, in what was used for, but... Uh, it kind of lost all purpose when the Germans started using innovation because they made, I am not pronouncing that, I'm going to just use the shortened version, the FG-42. Not the same as the MG-42. We'll get into that in a few. The FG-42 was an assault rifle, classified as an assault rifle. It took a standard box mag loaded with 8mm Mauser or 7.62 by 39 maybe 51. It was a fully automatic rifle with some decent sights on it but it was a fully automatic rifle so just point and shoot and speaking of the Germans as innovation they used the STG 44 also known as the Sturmgewehr I know how to pronounce that and it was used in 792 which was a unique cartridge made more for German weapons it had a selector switch that could change it from fully automatic to semi-automatic pretty neat gun had adjustable sights had adjustable rear sights but it had a stationary front sight and the adjustable rear sights on it 
were kind of screwy because again you're on a battlefield just shooting at things you don't really have much time to aim and fight back and forth so the next rifle we're on to here will be a Russian one the SKS the SKS rifle was used as an unmarksman's rifle mostly it was semi-automatic it had a detachable magazine but you could use it could double for stripper clips because it had a last round bolt hold open some of them did some of them you had to hold it open yourself but you could put the little stripper clip on it and shove the clip straight down in some of the variations had an, an attached bayonet to them that just folded and some variations didn't have an attached bayonet you had to carry the bayonet on your belt loop like you would any other knife like a sane person in terms of British weapons for assault rifles submachine guns that category they had the Sten gun it was basically a metal tube with some fluting towards the front it was an open bolt submachine gun let's not get it confused here it did it was a submachine gun it fired nine millimeter cartridges and it had a side stick magazine into it and it, it was pretty well just made of sheet metal and it was a tube that we just threw into action because we needed something that could be mass produced very cheaply which is what a lot of these countries did when you needed assault rifles you couldn't really do anything different because we didn't have the it would take too long to produce or it wouldn't have enough usage in the German side of the submachine guns the most notable two would be the MP38 and the MP40 practically the same thing they made some slight changes to the 40 they were literally sheet metal that had been stamped together and thrown into the field made very cheaply made very effectively they were commonly used by German soldiers as opposed to the Americans that use semi-automatics the MP40 shredded through excuse me shredded through enemy lines it, it didn't have any adjustable sights it took nine millimeter Luger and it was just a fully automatic killing machine at some point it, it was it had no other intent than just to shoot multiple rounds at enemy soldiers uh, now the Japanese for their submachine gun they had the type 100 and a little note if I say anything that says type to it it's probably Japanese it had a side fed magazine as opposed to a straight up and down like the Sten gun did the only real difference it made is it kind of functioned better but again we were still experimenting with submachine guns at the time it was used more for not frontline usage but the Japanese never really saw a whole lot of frontline combat in terms of straight head-on with American soldiers aside from island hopping and well you know where the story goes with the Japanese uh, on to the Lanchester which was an American rifle well American British they, they kind of shared it the Lanchester rifle was a submachine gun that had a side fed magazine fired at a very fast rate it was made to be a counterpart to the German submachine guns it fired very well it had an adjustable back sight it didn't have very great sights on it but it had a heat guard which was one of the more unique things that not all of them had the heat guard was so that you wouldn't shoot a whole bunch and then go to grab the front of it and just like singe your hand off because it had a wooden so stock so the stock could withstand more than the barrel could in terms of fire rate now it would get hot a lot of these submachine guns would get hot and if you grabbed it wrong you would have you would have less fingerprints for a week or two whether while they were healing uh, now on the US submachine guns I'm just gonna say it we had the Thompson it was a pretty effective gun but it was the Thompson 
I mean, that's about it. It had 45 caliber. Everybody knows it for gangsters, and if you don't know it for gangsters, then you've probably never heard of the Tommy gun. The only reason that the Thompson M1 was different than a lot of the other Thompson models, the front grip was solid block of wood because the soldiers themselves, there's records, the soldiers didn't like, quote, didn't like the gangster style of the weapon. They thought that it was unfit for the battlefield due to that reason. However, when they made the M1 variation over to the war effort, they had it in 45. It was automatic. They had taken, yeah, I think it was 100 to 200 rounds per minute away from the gun, made it, making it fire slower, although it was still an effective submachine gun. It fired a bit slower than some of the other ones did, which wasn't always looked very well upon, but uh, it did what it was supposed to for the most part. And for the Russian submachine guns that they kind of brought in, uh, they brought in the PPSH-41. It, it took some very strange Russian cartridge, 7.62 by, I believe, 25? I might be wrong on that. But it, it, was, it had an adjustable rear sight. It was a fully automatic short gun. It had the front grip so that it had a front barrel cover so that you wouldn't burn your hand just as I mentioned earlier with the Lanchester and the fire rate of these were okay but again with a lot of the submachine guns we had problems some of them we didn't because we had them for years and years and we tested them and then we just modified them some but a lot of these when they were first coming out we didn't really have a very good connection with them they jammed a lot they weren't the best speaking of jamming a lot that brings us over to the M3 not the M3A1 grease gun, the M3. It was a submachine gun that had a falling stock to it. It was fully automatic only. You couldn't switch it over. It was pure metal. It was, again, manufactured for a cheap but effective killing machine. And it, it did its job. It, although it wasn't widely used until the A1 variation came out due to the problems with the charging handle on it and certain uh, feed issues. But uh, this one... Also, the difference between the M3 and the M3A1, the M3 fed from a double stack, while this one fed from a single stack magazine. The only difference being the capacity there, but of course, they weren't always the best in either way, because like I mentioned, they did like to, j to jam a lot. Now, on to some of the more fun stuff of the war, the light machine guns, or general purpose machine guns. The I'm not going to say that because it's German and I'm not going to be able to say that properly. The MG34 had drum magazines. It was in 8mm Mauser. And the unique thing about the magazine on this one, it was a double drum, but it fed the cartridge to the middle where the bolt would pick it up from the middle. Unique concept. It was very effective at what it did. Like I mentioned earlier, the Germans were very, very innovative in the machine guns field. And whatever machine guns they made would just rip enemy soldiers apart. And it wasn't always the best thing to use, but it was used. Uh, the more well-known one of this one would be the MG42, which fired 8mm Mauser as well, but it fired from a belt. And it fired violently. It was known to overheat quite often. But it, it, it actually come with a kit. Half the barrel was cut open. It was a heat guard because the barrel was known to get so hot that to change to a certain number of, you'd go through so many rounds, you had to literally take the barrel out of the gun and put a new one in on the field 
just to continue firing your gun. This gun here was known as Hitler's buzzsaw. I'm just going to be informative here. It, it was, quite frankly, used on mostly the front lines, but it, it killed a lot of people. And these were, uh, fun little tidbit, they were used in the Battle of Normandy in the bunkers. And that's why so many people died trying to get out of the boats, because these had such a high fire rate and such an efficient use to them that it, it shredded everything. It cut through armor, it cut right through people, it cut through everything that it hit. These were highly feared by most enemy soldiers. Now, the flip side of that, the Germans never really liked the shotguns, which the Americans proceeded to use not very many of, but they did use shotguns to clear the trenches. The shotguns to clear the trenches, certain ones of them had bayonet mounts on the front of them. I'm not going to get into the shotguns. I don't, I don't have a whole lot on those. Now, the Russian, in terms of higher caliber rifles, that were made as anti-material rifles. The PTRD and PTRS-41, same number on the back. They were technically different guns, although they were... Only difference was the way they functioned. The PTRS was a more convenient, but it wasn't the best rifle nonetheless. They were... They were in the weird Russian caliber of 14.5 uh, millimeter. I'm not entirely sure what the actual Russian cartridge is, but that's the main general uh, caliber size. They were used against tanks. They were used effectively against tanks. I won't just say used against tanks. These were effective enough to cut through tanks, half-tracks, whatever we brought onto the field. Anti-materials were anti-material rifles were made to cut through. A lot of them did that very, very effectively, and it also leveled out the playing field a bit more for those who didn't have a lot of the tank rifle uh, tanks or tank rifles now the american version and i kid you not was called the boys mark one it was an anti-tank rifle that just fired a very very large caliber round though i believe this one might have been was this the one that was semi-automatic i've got to look at this real quick uh it was it was bolt action it it was it fired multiple shots, which the Russian variations did not. And they made it very solid, but they also made them a little bit not solid in the terms that some of them would just blow up because, you know, we didn't have the proper seals and everything, didn't have the proper pressures written down, and they would just kind of go boom. Not in the correct way either. They would just kind of explode and injure, either injure seriously or kill the soldier behind it. Now, in the... In the continuation of anti-tank weapons, not rifles, more onto the bazookas or early models of them. The first one we have is the Piot, Projectile Infantry Anti-Tank. It was pretty well named the Piot just because you knew it was a shoulder-mounted weapon for the Americans that fired basically a great big ball of explosive at you. It, it worked kind of like a slingshot in the sense that it didn't always fire the best, but it did have an arc to it, a very notable arc due to the weight of the projectile. The Germans had the Panzerschreck, a very intimidating early variation of the modern bazookas. The M9 for the Americans, which was uh, pretty much the same as the Panzerschreck, except ours had like an actual wooden stock attached to it, so your shoulder would still feel the recoil. Why they did this, I'm not 100% sure, but it was basically a tube with two grips and a stock, and it fired explosives out of it. Simple enough. 
And the stock didn't go all the way back either. It cut down about halfway so you could mount it to your shoulder correctly. So, the Panzerfaust. German, obviously. You hear Panzer, you think of the German Panzer tanks. And it was just an anti-infantry, anti-tank weapon. And then the, the last thing, really, that we would have in the war would be the flamethrowers. But all flamethrowers, aside from the different way that the men would hold them, flamethrowers had the same efficiency. Somebody's in a bunker and we can't get them out. I got an idea. And you just run right in there, and if you didn't hit them with the fire, the smoke would take out all the oxygen and suffocate them. And I believe that's what we've got for today. I'm Lucas Sims, and this has been Tiger Talk. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Tiger Talk. For more information on Work County High School, visit us at workcountyschools.com. Go Tigers!